let him talk about hard cider, 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 and lock heavens too. Will only help to speed the ball for Tippecanoe and Tyler too. For Tippecanoe and Tyler too. And with them will beat little Van. Van. Van is a used up man. And with them will beat little Van. Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan. Episode 9 Old Tippecanoe, William Henry Harrison. You've heard of William Henry Harrison. You just might not remember why. William Henry Harrison revolutionized presidential campaigns by personally campaigning in one of the wildest, booziest races in our nation's history. But that's not why you've heard of William Henry Harrison. William Henry Harrison defeated the Indian chief Tecumseh during the War of 1812. But that's not why you've heard of William Henry Harrison. The reason you've heard of William Henry Harrison is he's the president who gave a two-hour inaugural address in the cold rain and then got sick and died 31 days later. That's why you've heard of William Henry Harrison. He's the shortest-serving president in American history. But we're still going to discuss him because, as you might have gathered, he led a pretty interesting life. So get ready for the legend of Tippecanoe and Tyler Two. And maybe grab yourself some booze. It's time for William Henry Harrison. William Henry Harrison was born on February 9th, 1773, to a prominent Virginia family. His father was a two-time governor of Virginia and a signer of the Declaration of Independence which meant Harrison grew up hearing stories of the revolution and the promise of American democracy, and he was keen to get involved. He was also the seventh of seven children. So by the time it was his turn to go to college, instead of sending him to a prestigious school fitting of his family station, like the College of William and Mary, his parents sent him to Hampton Sydney College, which was not the College of William and Mary. And then they moved him somewhere else when they heard he was hanging out with those hippie abolitionists, and, well, that wasn't going to do. After he graduated the Southern College, his dad arranged for him to study medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. But when Harrison arrived in Philadelphia in 1791 on his way to Penn, he received a letter from his family. His father had died, and his older brother's didn't really want to pay for him to go to medical school, so they weren't going to. Good luck, bro! Luckily, he was in Philadelphia, and in 1791, Philadelphia was the nation's capital. And the nation's president was a certain fellow Virginian you might remember from episode one, named George Washington. Washington, as it turns out, had been friends with William Henry Harrison's father. So when Harrison reached out to Washington and said, hey, do you think he can get me an officer's commission in the army? Which, by the way, was not easy back then because the army was friggin' tiny. Washington said he, quote, had no reason to reject the request of a son of an old friend. And he personally gave 18-year-old Harrison his commission. And this begins the first phase of Harrison's life, the military years. And this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time before getting to his crazy presidential campaign. Let's call that phase two. And then to that one month he was president, which I guess we can call phase three. Okay, so maybe you're wondering, 
What kind of commission did Washington give this son of an old friend? Was he a colonel, a general, a Roman praetor? Well, he was a recruiter. Harrison got his start marching around cities in a little fife and drum band, uh, not unlike the music I frequently use in this program. So just picture that it's been Harrison performing for us this whole time. And Harrison would go around in this little band trying to recruit regulars to join the army, where they would make a killing with a sweet, sweet monthly wage of $2.10. Oh yeah. When Harrison had recruited 80 men, he led them to the Midwest, which at this point was the wild frontier. And when I say wild, I mean wild. There were no roads, few trading posts, few people at all. But this is where Harrison would establish his career, because there was something going on in the West that Harrison would get drawn into. Indian Wars. Now, calling them wars kind of makes them out to be more than they really were, but there were frequent acts of violence and occasional skirmishes between American settlers, of which there weren't many, and Native American tribes in the modern Midwest. The Americans, well, we had a habit of over-serving the natives and then pressing them to sign terrible trade deals or land sales when they were way too drunk to give consent. And when an American made a deal like this with one tribe, they kind of expected all the others to abide by it too. And this extended beyond the let's get them drunk trick. Sometimes you might encounter a tribe who had a real bad harvest and was starving for food. Well, the Americans might say, we'll give you this food if you give us all the land over by the river. And the tribe would say, well, that's not our land, but we need the food, and a deal would be signed. Which naturally led to a lot of resentment when the tribe that actually owned that land found out it had been sold by people that didn't own it. (laughs) And in 1793... William Henry Harrison, he found himself in his first battle against a ticked-off war band led by the Shawnee chief Blue Jacket. The battle was the Battle of Fallen Timbers, and it got that name because it was fought in a wooded area where the trees had been knocked down by a tornado. Blue Jacket was hopelessly outnumbered by the Americans and soon retreated to a fort held by his British allies because, oh yeah, There are still totally British forts in the American Midwest right now, kind of like in Monty Python, where you have that French castle in England, and what are they doing there? Yeah, that was going on in the American Midwest too. But the British, they didn't let Blue Jacket in, so he had to surrender. A peace treaty was signed by William Henry Harrison and every other white or native leader there, except one, Tecumseh a young Shawnee who had lost a brother in the battle and who refused to swear peace with the Americans. And Tecumseh, well, he's going to be back. Sometime after this battle, William Henry Harrison met Anna Sims, a woman who owned huge tracts of land, or at least her dad did. And Harrison and Anna married in 1793. And there was a little fun bit of drama here, Anna's father didn't approve of his daughter marrying a soldier, so either the two eloped or the father stormed out of the wedding ceremony. Whatever it was, dad soon got over it, and William and Anna lived happily ever after and had ten children. Whoa. Also, spoiler alert, 
one of the children of one of those children will eventually be elected America's 23rd president in 1889. This is the only grandfather-grandson presidential duo in American history. Anyway, in 1799, 26-year-old Harrison befriended President John Adams during a stint in Washington as a non-voting delegate to Congress from the Midwestern Territories, and when a new governor had to be found for the Indiana Territory, Adams found Harrison. And you might be thinking, hey, Kenny, I thought this was the military phase of Harrison's career. And don't worry, it's going to come full circle. The Indiana Territory that Harrison was now governor of was huge. It included most of modern Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Basically, half the Big Ten. And it was still totally wild country. The entire government for all of this land was just Harrison and three traveling judges. That's it. And most of that traveling happened by river, because there still weren't any roads. Harrison's main job was to acquire land from the region's native tribes and to attract settlers. And Harrison got very specific advice from President Thomas Jefferson on how to do that. Jefferson wrote Harrison to get the chiefs to run up a debt on supplies and whiskey, quote, because we observe that when their debts get beyond what the individuals can pay, they become willing to lip them off by the cessation of lands. That's totally what Thomas Jefferson sounded like. Which is your daily reminder, Jefferson's kind of a jerk. Harrison didn't embrace this approach, though. And this is pretty commendable. He actually tried to outlaw the sale of alcohol to natives to prevent that type of exploitation. That's not to say he didn't try to acquire native land. He was a hard bargainer, and he pursued land vigorously. He just wasn't going to get them drunk first or steal the land through violence. But that's not to say Harrison is entirely ahead of his time as a territorial governor. Slavery was banned in the Indiana Territory by Congress, but Harrison chose to interpret this as a ban on the buying and selling of slaves, not the owning of them. And any freed slaves that happened to live there, they were clearly second-class citizens, thanks to some laws Harrison helped pass. For example, free blacks could not testify against whites in court. So not great there. But I promised you more Tecumseh, and it's time to deliver. While William Henry Harrison was starting a family and working his way toward governor of the Indiana Territory, the Shawnee warrior Tecumseh was building his own following. Tecumseh hadn't forgotten his rage at the Americans over the defeat at Fallen Timbers, where, remember, he was the only chief who refused to attend a peace ceremony after the battle. He had lost a brother in that battle, but he had another, a prophet, who worked with Tecumseh to form a confederation of Native Americans who were tired of American settlers taking their land. And these guys were old school. Their argument was basically this. What's this BS about owning land anyway? Before the Europeans arrived, the concept of owning land didn't really exist among Native American tribes. They didn't get it. As Tecumseh put it, quote, Why not sell the air, the great sea, as well as the earth? Did not the great spirit make them all for the use of his children? And if you're kind of nodding along, well, a whole bunch of frustrated Native Americans were nodding along too. And they had allies, the British, 
who still held forts in the region, and who were willing to sell guns and ammunition to Tecumseh and his followers. By the year 1811, Tecumseh had five to seven hundred armed warriors under his command, and they formed a new settlement called Prophetstown in the Indiana Territory on the Tippecanoe River. This was starting to look very threatening to Governor Harrison. Seven hundred warriors might not sound like much, but the entire Indiana Territory had just 24,000 people in it in 1810. 700 warriors can do a lot of damage when you're spread that thin. So Harrison decided to be proactive. Before the brothers could get any stronger, Harrison gathered 1,000 volunteers and marched on Prophetstown along the Tippecanoe River to face them and talk them into disbanding. Tecumseh was away when Harrison arrived, but his brother, the prophet, was there. And at first, the prophet played along. He told Harrison he was willing to talk peace. So Harrison formed a camp nearby to serve as his base during the expected negotiation. But he didn't fortify it. And that night, the prophet attacked. The Battle of Tippecanoe was probably a terrifying affair. The Americans were caught unprepared in their open camp in the middle of the night with these raging fires behind them that silhouetted them and made them easy targets for the Native American warriors who fired unseen from the dark and haunting woods. For hours, it looked like the surrounded Americans might be doomed. But the prophet just didn't have enough men to do anything more than take pot shots from the dark. He couldn't swarm the camp and overrun it, or his small number of men would be killed. When the sun rose, the Americans could begin to make out the shapes of their attackers in the woods. They counterattacked and drove the prophet away. The Americans marched into the abandoned prophet's town and burned it to the ground. The Battle of Tippecanoe was a costly victory. The Americans lost more men than they killed, but in time, it would make a president of William Henry Harrison. But Tecumseh was still out there, and warriors still rallied to his name. And before long, they had the full might of the British Empire fighting at their side. Less than a year after the Battle of Tippecanoe, President James Madison convinced Congress to declare war on Great Britain. The War of 1812 had begun. And the Battle of Tippecanoe and the British arming of Native American war bands was one of the reasons Madison gave for asking Congress to declare it. For William Henry Harrison, the War of 1812 would largely be an Indian war. But it would also be a war he was slow to join. The young Speaker of the House, Henry Clay, supported him. But other more senior and more politically well-connected men got generalships ahead of Harrison. Unfortunately for them, they were terrible generals, and soon all were defeated. I mean, one guy surrendered Detroit to the British without even firing a shot. Another, he recklessly invaded deep into Canadian territory until he was surrounded and captured. American attacks near Niagara Falls and Lake Champlain in the east also were beaten back, and the British occupied. They invaded down and took over the fort that would one day become Chicago. As the British and their Native American allies scored victories, more and more warriors flocked to Tecumseh's banner. As 1812 turned to 1813, it appeared the American West could be lost. But then, in the spring of 1813, things finally began to turn America's way. 
a naval commander named Oliver Perry won an important naval battle on Lake Erie to secure American control of the Great Lake. This was hugely important because it allowed the Americans to quickly move and supply themselves as they moved around the lake. It then fell to 39-year-old William Henry Harrison to salvage the war in the West, and everyone was looking to him for that big win on the ground. William Henry Harrison took advantage of the mobility that Lake Erie provided to recapture Detroit and then pursue the British Army and Tecumseh up along the Thames River, where Tecumseh convinced the British to stand and fight, setting the stage for the climactic Battle of the West, the Battle of the Thames. And to be honest, the British probably should have kept running away. Harrison had 3,500 American volunteers under his command. And the British had just 800 soldiers and 500 Native American allies. Tecumseh and the British were outnumbered nearly three to one. When the Americans approached, the British lined up in a traditional battle line. But Harrison ordered his cavalry to charge straight in, and they scattered the British infantry who quickly surrendered, practically ending the battle as soon as it began. Tecumseh's warriors, they tried to make a stand, but they were overwhelmed and Tecumseh was killed. A body that was thought to be his was found after the battle, and American soldiers skinned it and collected strips of flesh as gruesome trophies. Gross! The Americans, after the battle, they also attacked and burned a nearby village of peaceful Native Americans who had nothing to do with Tecumseh or the War of 1812, which is terrible. But I want to be clear. Harrison had nothing to do with the skinning, the flesh trophies, or burning the peaceful village. When the war ended, he was second only to Andrew Jackson in the pantheon of heroes from the War of 1812. As the war drew toward a close in 1814, 41-year-old William Henry Harrison retired from the military and worked to establish peace with the region's Native American tribes. The victories Harrison won against Tecumseh and the peace he secured after the war opened the Indiana Territory and the American Midwest to a wave of American settlers and centuries of prosperity. That wraps up the military career of William Henry Harrison the man who rose to governor of the Indiana Territory and won the battles of Tippecanoe and the Thames against the Shawnee chief Tecumseh and his brother, the Prophet. And you might be thinking, with a shining resume like that, and knowing that the presidency is in his future, what did William Henry Harrison do next? And the answer is a whole lot of nothing for 20 years. That's right. After retiring from the military, Harrison spent 20 years basically accomplishing nothing. He tried his hand at businesses, but it never really worked out. He ran for office a few times, won some, lost some, and pursued political appointments. But when Andrew Jackson became president in 1828, Jackson decided the country wasn't big enough for two war heroes, and he kicked Harrison out of the government. A friend of Harrison, who was in Jackson's cabinet, tried to stand up for him and said, quote, If you had seen him as I did at the Battle of the Thames, you would, I think, let him alone. To which Jackson replied, You may be right. I reckon you are. But thank God, I didn't see him there. And so Harrison was out. By 1836, William Henry Harrison was a has-been. Virtually forgotten pitied by many, 
and clerking for a court to make ends meet. But fate was about to be kind. In 1836, Andrew Jackson was retiring from the presidency, and his vice president, Martin Van Buren, was running to replace him. A new political party had been formed by Henry Clay, that former Speaker of the House who once supported Harrison's military career back in the day. This party formed to oppose Jackson and the Democrats. Clay's party was called the Whigs. And we haven't really talked about them in depth yet, but they were kind of a mess. The Whigs were a hodgepodge of every different constituency you can imagine who really only had one thing in common. They hated Andrew Jackson. And I mean hated. Some hated him because he'd killed the bank. Some hated him because he'd opposed nullification. Some hated him because he'd trampled the Constitution, or maybe he'd shot their friend. The thing is, people had a lot of reasons to hate Andrew Jackson, and they joined Henry Clay in forming a party to defeat him and his Democrats. But When Henry Clay ran against Jackson as the Whigs' first presidential candidate in 1832, he was easily defeated. So when the Whigs prepared to run against Van Buren in 36, everyone was looking to new leaders to lead the way. And they found one. Actually two. Actually three. (laughs) Actually four. (laughs) Four different Whigs ran for president against Martin Van Buren in 1836. And one of them was 63-year-old William Henry Harrison. And how did William Henry Harrison get caught up in all this? I mean, just a moment ago, he was a washed-up has-been clerking for a court who everyone pitied. How did he go from that to presidential candidate? Well, The Whigs knew they were too unorganized to run a national candidate against Van Buren and the Democrats, so they encouraged each region to choose its own candidate. They knew none of their guys would get more votes than Van Buren, but they hoped that these regional favorites might deny Van Buren a majority, so the election could go to the House of Representatives instead, kind of like it had in 1824, and then who knows what could happen. When William Henry Harrison learned he was the favorite candidate of the Northwest, well, shoot, he was surprised as anybody. Telling a friend, quote, Some folks are silly enough to have formed a plan to make a president of the United States of this clerk and clodhopper. But those folks did have a plan. They were going to run Harrison on two things. One, he was a war hero. And two, nobody knew where he stood on anything. Seriously. The former president of the Bank of the United States, Nicholas Biddle, who you may remember hated Andrew Jackson and the Democrats for killing his bank back in the Jackson episode, he summed up Harrison's strategy perfectly. Quote, Let him rely entirely on the past. Let him say not a single word about his principles or his creed. Let him say nothing, promise nothing. Let no committee, no convention, no town meetings even extract from him a single word about what he thinks now or what he will do hereafter. Let the use of the pen and ink be wholly forbidden as if you were a mad poet in Bedlam. (laughs) That's a pretty awesome quote, right? And it proved to be a good strategy. William Henry Harrison didn't win the election of 1836, but he performed better than any of the other Whig candidates. The final tally in the Electoral College was 170 votes for Van Buren, 73 for Harrison, 
26 for wig B, 14 for wig C, and 11 for wig D. I'm not going to bother you with their names. Harrison had not won, but he proved he had strong appeal, and he had whet his appetite for presidential politics. In 1840, he would run again. But he would not be a shoe in that year either, because party founder Henry Clay again wanted to be the Whig nominee. And at first, it looked like Henry Clay was well on his way to getting what he wanted. I mean, it was his party. But then the 1838 midterms turned fate on its head when the Whig party was trounced by the Democrats in Maine state elections. And you might be thinking, who cares? What's the big deal? Well, back then, political polling didn't exist yet. So midterm and off-year elections were the best barometers party leaders had to gauge how popular their candidates and their policies actually were. So when the Whigs lost big in Maine in 38, everybody was wondering where the Whigs had gone wrong. And then a prominent Whig newspaper suggested that the reason they'd lost is because the only way the Whigs could win was with a popular war hero similar to Andrew Jackson on the ticket. In other words, someone like William Henry Harrison. In 1839, the Whigs held their first national convention in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, to decide who their party's nominee would be. And there were three contenders entering this convention. Henry Clay, William Henry Harrison, and another general we've mentioned in the past, and who we'll mention again in the future, named Winfield Scott. Oh, fuss and feathers! On the first ballot, Clay led Harrison 103 to 91, with 57 votes for Scott. So Clay had a plurality, but not the majority you actually needed to win. So they went to another ballot, and then another. It's unclear how many ballots it took for the tables to turn, like maybe three, maybe five, but it is clear what caused them to turn. One of Harrison's supporters played a trick to eliminate Scott and rally his backers behind Harrison. Basically, this supporter walked past the Virginia delegation on the floor of the convention, which had been supporting Scott, and the guy dropped a letter where he knew they'd see it, that was addressed from General Scott to New York abolitionists expressing support for their views. When the Virginia delegation picked up and read this letter, they were furious. I mean, being Southerners, they would be damned if they were going to let an abolitionist on the ticket. The Virginia delegation abandoned Scott for the other general, Harrison, and Scott's other supporters followed suit. Harrison won immediately with 148 votes compared to 90 for Clay and 16 for Scott. Clay was shocked and angry. He had built the Whigs. He'd founded them. They were his party. And they were rejecting him for this washed up war hero who didn't stand for anything. I mean, you'd be pissed too, right? So when the Whigs turned to Clay and asked if he would join the ticket as Harrison's vice president, Clay said, heck no. And when the Whigs asked Clay's friends to be vice president, they said, heck no, too. Basically, everyone who was asked to be vice president said, heck no, in solidarity with Henry Clay, until finally the party asked a man named John Tyler 
if he would run as Harrison's vice president. And Tyler said yes. And because everyone was so desperate to find a vice presidential candidate at that point, nobody asked Tyler what he believed in, or what he was even doing at the convention. But that's no problem. It's not like an American president has ever died in office before, right? As the Whigs exited the convention of 1839, they had found their man. And as they entered 1840, they prepared to run one of the craziest presidential election campaigns of all time. It really got going when a uh, Democratic newspaper published an op-ed trying to define Harrison in the eyes of voters before he had a chance to define himself. This is right after the convention. And this is classic political strategy. Politicians are always trying to make voters think less of their opponents to suppress the opponent's support. And the Democrats chose to lean into the image of Harrison being a washed-up has-been by writing, quote, Give him a barrel of hard cider and settle a pension of 2000 a year on him and take my word for it. He will sit the remainder of his days in a log cabin. And that little line right there might have done more than anything to make William Henry Harrison president. Because it turns out Democrats had stumbled into one of the great truisms of American politics. If Americans can picture themselves sharing a drink with you, they're more likely to vote for you. The Harrison campaign embraced this image of a humble man living in a log cabin, drinking hard cider, and made it central to their campaign. Never mind the fact that Harrison was from a wealthy Virginia plantation family, log cabins were built in cities across the country to serve as campaign headquarters, and they were always stocked full of hard cider, and every night was a party. One clever businessman started selling log cabin-shaped whiskey bottles. His name was E.C. Booze, and that's why we call it Booze. Hard cider and whiskey flowed liberally, and the Whigs really leaned into the party half of party politics. They held marches through towns with lots of music, like that catchy ditty at the start of this episode. Van, van, van's a use-up man, 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 I love it. <laughs> Sometimes they'd start these marches by making huge papier-mâché balls, and I mean like tall as a man, and then they'd paint campaign slogans all over them and roll them down Main Street ahead of the parades. This is where the phrase, get the ball rolling, comes from. Now, sticking with Biddle's advice... Harrison said hardly a word about his beliefs or values during the campaign, but he leaned hard into his legacy as a war hero from 1812. Remember the battle against Tecumseh's brother at the Tippecanoe River? Harrison's rallying cry became Tippecanoe and Tyler too, Tippecanoe being Harrison and Tyler too being John Tyler. Harrison also was the first candidate to successfully break down a long-standing taboo in American politics campaigning for oneself. The founding fathers never did this. They wanted to be like virtuous old Romans that they romanticized in their histories, waiting for the public to summon them to duty. They let their friends do the campaigning. But Harrison, well, he was so successful at not saying anything that Democrats started accusing him of being unable to think for himself. So he felt he had to get out there and start telling old war stories and preaching the party line in rallies and speeches all across the country. He had an exhaustive schedule. So when I say the average American could picture themselves drinking with Harrison, they could actually picture themselves drinking with Harrison. 
Van Buren's campaign tried to combat this, begrudgingly. Like, to counter all those log cabins, they opened OK Clubs. OK stood for Old Kinderhook, Van Buren's hometown. And this might be the origin of saying things are okay. But, well, you may remember from Van Buren's episode, this is the campaign where his campaign song went to the tune of Rockabye Baby. I mean, that's not exactly lighting the world on fire. The closest thing Van Buren had to someone who could fight at Harrison's level was his vice president, Richard Mentor Johnson, whose only claim to fame, and I mean only, like this is basically why he was on the ticket, is that he had fought in Harrison's army at the Battle of the Thames, and some claimed he had fired the shot that killed Tecumseh. (laughs) And the Van Buren campaign played this up. There was a traveling stage act that went town to town reenacting the killing of Tecumseh, and it would display a blood-stained propped clothes that it claimed that's what Tecumseh had been wearing when he was shot. And it had a prop rifle that said, this is the rifle that killed Tecumseh. I mean, this campaign was absurd. That's the kind of stuff that people are being asked to pick a president on. But frankly... Martin Van Buren could have kicked off his shoes and shared a drink with every American in the country in 1840, and it would not have done him any good. The United States was still suffering from the tail end of that Great Depression before the Great Depression that began with the Panic of 1837, that great financial collapse we talked about in Van Buren's episode. And no amount of campaigning or alcohol could make Americans forget it. The election of 1840 was one of the highest turnout elections in American history. 80.2% of eligible voters cast their ballots, compared to roughly 55%, say, in our recent couple elections, 2012 and 2016. And when the ballots were counted, William Henry Harrison trounced Van Buren 234 to 60. It was a rout. And so, on March 4th, 1841, William Henry Harrison, the hero of Tippecanoe and the ex-governor of the Indiana Territory, who spent nearly 20 years of political nobody and then ran one of the craziest campaigns of all time, became the first Whig elected president. At 68 years old, he was the oldest person yet elected to that office, and he's still the third oldest at the time of this recording in September 2020. But what did the world and the country look like when Harrison became president? Let's take a look. Internationally, an independent Texas was petitioning the United States for entry. But no president had been willing to touch that hot potato because of the questions it would raise about the expansion of slavery, and because Mexico still kind of said Texas was theirs. In Asia, the first opium war had broken out between Britain and China. It was a war Britain would win, resulting in their acquisition of Hong Kong and then the signing of some trade deals that would be disastrous for China's Qing dynasty. This is kind of, this is like the end of dynasty power in China. Domestically, the United States was growing rapidly. The population had increased 36% the previous 10 years, and this really isn't a country of immigrants yet. We are growing the old-fashioned way right now. In 1840, 68% of Americans worked in agriculture, 
12% worked in industry and 20% worked in services. Now compare that to today, when only 1.3% of Americans work in agriculture, 20% are in industry, and a whopping 79% are in the service industry. That's according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. In 1840, the economy was finally beginning to recover from the depression that had followed the Panic of 1837. Railroads were starting to take root in the Northeast. And so what did William Henry Harrison do as president? Well, he started by giving the longest inaugural address in American history, speaking for more than two hours in pouring winter rain. And then he got sick. And then it looked like he was getting better. And then, 31 days after being sworn in, he died, probably killed by D.C.'s terrible sanitation. (laughs) The nation's capital didn't yet have a sewer system, so the city's human waste dumped out into a little marsh not far from the White House and the city's drinking water, which is gross and possibly deadly to two American presidents. We'll get to the other one later. That's the presidency of William Henry Harrison. And all of a sudden, Vice President John Tyler, the guy who was vice president because nobody else wanted the job, the guy no one had even bothered to ask what he believed in, he was the president. And as it turns out, that's going to be a problem. But we'll leave that for Tyler's episode. So, how had the country and the world changed? during Harrison's presidency. Well, a month had passed. Everyone was a month older. I mean, what did you expect? That's about it. Nothing happened. So, if anyone ever asks you to name three things about William Henry Harrison, you can find all three things in his old campaign slogan. Tippecanoe and Tyler too. Tippecanoe refers to his battles against the Indian chief Tecumseh and his time as governor and a general in the Indiana Territory. The full phrase, Tippecanoe and Tyler too, that reminds us of that crazy presidential campaign of 1840 with all the hard cider and campaign songs and total lack of disgusting issues. And Tyler too reminds us of his vice president, John Tyler, who nobody vetted and who became president because William Henry Harrison died a month after being sworn in. So what can we learn from Harrison? Honestly, take care of yourself. Physically, mentally, emotionally, all your health, the whole kit and caboodle. People out there rely on you, and you do not want to pull a William Henry Harrison and drop dead on them when they need you and John Tyler's in the wings. I do want to leave you with one other story, though. It's a story you might have heard before, and it begins the day of William Henry Harrison's funeral. An African-American man who had been born free in New York was visiting the nation's capital that day when he was drugged and kidnapped into slavery and then sold into the South. The man's name was Solomon Northup, and he spent 12 years a slave before his friends back north could find him and free him from bondage. The memoir he'd write about his experience in slavery in the South, which was turned into a movie in 2013, would shock the Northern conscience and help turn the North away from tolerance of slavery toward opposition to slavery in the decade before the Civil War. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. You can follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridged presidential histories. It helps me buy books and pay to host the show. The music in today's podcast was a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard, Fife, and Drum Corps. The intro music was a recording of Isaac Brands from Smithsonian Folkway Records. The primary biography for today's episode was William Henry Harrison by Gail Collins. In our next episode... We're going to take a detour down to Texas, which the United States is about to annex, causing all sorts of problems. We'll catch you up on what the Texans have been up to through the eyes of a man the Cherokee called either the Raven or the Big Drunk, depending on his current behavior. Get ready for Sam Houston, first president of the Republic of Texas. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.